Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody and welcome back to the episode 242 follow-up edition. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. First and foremost, I want to wish everyone today a happy Veterans Day. I want to take this moment to honor all of our armed service, both active duty and veterans. We have a deep respect for the sacrifices that you've made for this country, and we want to thank you for your service. Yeah, it really means a lot, and I think a lot of times Americans tend to forget what our armed services have sacrificed uh, for us to be here today. Exactly. So thank you, all of you veterans, and this Bud's for you. Bottoms up. (laughs) So as you guys, I hope, got the tone of last week, we want these follow-up episodes to be a lot more, I don't want to say loosey-goosey, but we want to be more informal and conversational. So you can consider these to be have a beer with Bob and Mike Day. Absolutely. So Tuesday nights, when you guys call in for these episodes, it's have a beer with Bob and Mike Day. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss episode 242, ISIS Terror. As a quick refresher, in episode 242, we broke down Dale Hugel's supplemental report that was supposed to be a summary of the entire investigation. And as you all heard last week, The report was riddled with inaccuracies and lies. In the second segment, we discussed the report generated by the investigation firm ISIS. And by the way, yes, they have changed their name in recent years. But back in 1993, they were called ISIS. We found out through that report that not only did the defense have videotapes in their possession proving that there were indeed open sewer lines at both Mrs. Dew's house and Elnora Griffin's house, but they had also interviewed Francis Johnson's cousin, William Scott, who stated clearly that he was helping Francis Johnson dig the pond and Francis Johnson was out behind Johnny's house for several weeks in the summer of 1993, when he claimed to be in Georgia. And we're going to start today's show by going over email, Facebook, and Twitter questions about the episode. All right, Chief. I got one email here with three points to it. All right. It's from Dana Stauffer. That ISIS report says that Angela sometimes went by the name of Mosley. Were she and Leonard ever married? If so, that would suggest considerable dishonesty in his 2016 interview. Okay, the question is, were Angela and Leonard ever married? 
and I have not been able to find any record of them ever being married, but through my background checks, I have seen her name listed as Angela Mosley several times. Now, when I communicated with her, she never said anything about them being married, and neither did Leonard. But I agree that it definitely shows some dishonesty there. Even if they weren't married, they were obviously together long enough and had a serious enough relationship that she was using his last name, at least at some point, on some official documents. Because that's what it takes for it to show up on any of the background checks, is that they pulled that name off of some kind of official document. Do you think it's possible that they're married? I think it's possible, but probably unlikely. When I do record searches, usually marriage licenses will come up, and I did not find any marriage licenses for Angela Walker and Leonard Mosley. So I think it might have been more of a common law thing. Sure. Or that she was just using the last name for some reason, maybe because they had a child together. I don't know. But no, I I don't think that it's likely. It's not impossible, but I don't think that it's likely that they were actually married. Okay. Uh, Her second point here says... Were you suggesting that the police found a Jolly Rancher candy in Ed's room and used it as evidence? Wasn't that awfully early on in the investigation? Isn't it much more likely that they would have begun inventing evidence to fit Ed's guilt much later, once they were already locked into him as their suspect? Or at what point do you think the police began trying to make the evidence fit Ed, rather than searching down leads? Well, that would make sense except for the fact that I believe they had their suspect locked in the very night that they spoke with Ed and brought him into the police station. You remember what Monica Bush says. Monica Bush testified that when she got the phone call that night, the deputy Cheney, when he got on the phone with her, immediately told her that Ed had killed Elnora, that he had raped her and sodomized her. She said that he was telling her terrible things about Ed that she knew couldn't be true. So it seems pretty obvious that right from the get-go, the police had their blinders on. So consider this. If they were really investigating this case and they were looking into all leads and all suspects, then why, when they spoke with Leonard Mosley, didn't they check his body for scratches? Why didn't they test his shoes for blood? Why didn't they look at the bottom of his shoes for feces? They never did that with anyone else. The only person they ever investigated was Ed Eights. So, yes, it would make more sense that they wouldn't start say, fabricating evidence until after they had him locked in as a suspect. But the problem is that I believe they had him locked in as a suspect the moment that Kubia Jackson said that Elnora told her that she was sitting there talking to Edward. I don't believe that the Smith County Sheriff's Department had much interest in actually solving this crime. They wanted to close this case. Now, as far as am I suggesting that they planted evidence, I don't even want to say that I'm suggesting it. I'm just saying that it's something that I thought about that could have happened. The whole deal with the Jolly Rancher rappers just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The fact that Ed says he was interviewed in Huckel's office, and Huckel says they were interviewed in Waller's office. The fact that the way Ed says they got the Jolly Rancher rapper doesn't match up with the way that Huckel says they got the Jolly Rancher rapper. It all just seems very fishy or hinky, so to speak. So I guess I'm not suggesting that. I don't I don't want to put that. I don't want to go that far to say that they would do something like that. But given everything else that we know about this case, I just can't rule out the fact that that Jolly Rancher rapper might have come from Ed's bedroom. Right. Okay. Dana has a third point here. She says, how is this not ineffective assistance of counsel? I'm still 50-50 on whether Ed did it, but I can't see how you conclude from 242 anything other than Ed's lawyers through the case. That's a really strong accusation, and again, very similar to the last question, it's something that I I hate to put out there, and I can't imagine the motivation for actually 
throwing the case, but I definitely don't believe that Ed's attorneys put in their best effort. I mean, you're exactly right. When you look at that document, the ISIS report, and you see that the entire time they had this interview in their possession, it just blows my mind that William Scott was not subpoenaed and called as a witness. Now, maybe we'll find in the box of documents once we finally get it, if we ever get it from Smith County, maybe they subpoenaed him and they couldn't find him or something along those lines. But as far as everything that we know right now, all we know is that they had the interview in their possession and they didn't call William Scott at trial. And William Scott's testimony would have been devastating to the prosecution's case. When you pile on the fact that they had the videos about the open sewer lines and everything else that we've discussed in previous episodes, I think that Ed put it best. Ed has never told me that he thought that his lawyers threw the case, but what Ed has told me is that he always felt that his lawyers just gave up on him. Okay, Chief. Our next question is from Twitter, and it's a good follow-up to that. But before we get into that, we need to take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors. All right. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Now we're going to move on to the Twitter responses. Our first tweet comes from at Making Mrs. M. She says, Could Ed file for ineffective proof of counsel now that we know his attorneys knew about Francis Johnson, among other things? That's a good question, and that ties in with our previous email question from Dana. And that's still up in the air, but yeah, I believe that we have a clear ineffective assistance of counsel claim here. Part of the reason for that is that this is newly discovered evidence. This is something that Edward Eights never knew existed until last week. Let me play here a quick clip from Ed when I brought this up to him on the phone last week. So I, I was digging through the files that I have, and I found an interview that ISIS did, the defense investigators. They interviewed a guy named William Scott. Do you know who that is? Who? William Scott. So he was Francis Johnson's cousin, and he's the guy that helped Francis fix the pond at Johnny's house. Uh, Did the defense team ever say anything to you about him? Did you know anything about him? No, I don't know anything about him. This is the first time I'm even hearing about him. I thought he did it by himself. So this interview with William Scott, your attorneys sent the investigator out uh, that Tony Hereford, Tony interviewed William Scott because Johnny had said that William Scott was out there helping Francis with the pond. And 
he he interviewed him and he asked him if he helped dig the pond. He said, yeah, I did. He said, how long did it take? He said it had to have been 10 days, maybe two, three weeks we were out there working on it. And he asked him when it was. And he told him that it was the summer of 1993. And Tony was trying to like make sure. Are you sure? He said, yeah, I'm positive. It was the summer of 93. And he asked him if he knew Elnora. And he said, no, I didn't know her, but I saw that woman that lived in the trailer when we were there working. Well, and, and so that confirmed because the only time, you know, the only summer Elnora was ever there was the summer of 93, right, right before she was killed. And right. I am just baffled by the fact that the de- your defense didn't call him as a witness. I'm just, I cannot believe they didn't call him as a witness because Francis Johnson got up there and gave that piece of paper and said, look, this is proof. I was in Georgia all summer and I never even came back to Tyler on a weekend pass at all. I was never in Tyler. And his cousin told the defense investigators that not only was there, but he was there for three weeks working on a pond with him behind the house. Right. Like I told you, I I know he was there for a fact, you know. Because I, I mean, I can't show you anything, but I know he was there. Yeah, I mean, it's you like lived I right there. I'm sure you saw him. As you can tell, Ed has no idea who William Scott is. And he certainly didn't know that there was an interview where William Scott had put Francis Johnson in Tyler, Texas during the summer of 1993, which would impeach Francis Johnson's testimony. And if we can prove that, then that leads to a couple of issues. Number one, we have ineffective assistance of counsel. And number two, We have a due process violation. Ed was convicted based on the false testimony of Francis Johnson. Remember, Johnson said that there's no way Ed's story could have been true because he couldn't have been in Tyler, Texas in the summer of 93 because he was in Georgia the whole time and he never even came home on a weekend pass. So this discovery definitely opens up a couple of avenues for us. Chief, hang on a second. Is that a cut and dry claim or what are the burdens of proof in order for him to make that claim? Well, nothing's cut and dry. It's all going to come down to a judge's determination. So you have, first of all, in order to reopen his case, there has to be newly discovered evidence. So we have to have evidence that, one, it existed. We have that. Two, that his attorneys had access to it. I believe we have that. And three, that Ed did not know that this existed during the last 18 years. And according to Ed, he didn't. And what you heard in that conversation that I had with Ed I didn't preempt him at all. I just started asking him a little bit about William Scott just to see what he thought before I told him what was going on. And all of that is just to get it back into court, to get a judge to even hear it. Once a judge hears it, then as far as the ineffective assistance of counsel, Ed would have to both prove that his attorneys did not meet the Strickland standard and provide him with adequate counsel, and then also they have to prove the prejudice prong, meaning that had they not made that mistake, it could have led to a different outcome at trial. So it's definitely still up in the air, but hopefully it's an avenue that we can now use to get Ed's case back into court. Gotcha. Okay. We have another tweet here. Kind of a jab, Chief. A a jab? Oh, yeah. This one comes from Ludwig Dana 6. Ludwig Dana 6 says, BTW, it's bald-faced, not bold-faced. OMG. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh that's that's funny she tweeted that because a couple of people sent me emails. I get and for all of you listening, a little behind the scenes action, and Mike's aware of this. Right. I, I get emails from the grammar police after every single episode. Yeah, yeah, literally every time. And that's because I talk funny. Uh so what what was the name again? Uh this was Ludwig Dana Six. Okay, Ludwig Dana Six. I apologize for misspeaking. 
Uh, I actually had someone send me like links to Urban Dictionary and all kinds of places online explaining to me that it is not bold-faced lie. It is bald-faced lie. And so uh, I accept, I concede that I was incorrect. And I will probably continue saying bold-faced lie <laughs> <laughs> because that's just how I talk. And that's a lot of times, sometimes it's just me being a, an idiot. <laughs> and I just say the wrong thing. But sometimes it's literally just a, a vernacular thing based on the region where we live. I get, you know what the one I get the most? What's that? Is interesting. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Literally almost every single episode, we get an email from somebody telling me it's interesting and not interesting. <laughs> Must be a Michigan thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like giving me a complex about it. And so like I've been listening to other people talk around here. And it seems to be that in the the Great Lakes state of Michigan, uh, the T does not exist in interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, sorry to all of you who are bothered by my grammar. Please feel free to continue sending in all of your corrections. Just know that sometimes, and also understand too, there's a lot of fatigue. I mean, Mike can vouch for this. Oh, absolutely. A lot of times when we're recording this, I mean, it's late at night, it's hours, especially lately. There's been so much research. Last week, we had a whole different episode planned. Yeah. And then we found that document and had to throw out the rundown at the last minute and start completely over. Yeah, switch gears right in the middle of the week. Yeah, and then we also had this David Dobbs interview looming over us, and we keep thinking it's going to happen, and it's not going to happen. So sometimes it's like late at night. It's been hours. I'm stuttering and stammering and making Mike's job really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because Mike does all the editing. So sometimes it's literally just I'm too tired to say words. But uh, I acknowledge, again, that it is correct that it should be bald-faced. But I'll tell you what, around Michigan... People say bold face. Oh, absolutely. I, I've never heard bald face. It must be our Michigander accent. <laughs> yeah. All right. What's next? Okay. We have another tweet here from Kevin Johnson. Could Mosley have started work at 730 on the 23rd, as I think he said? So many different accounts that I've lost track. Good question. And the answer to that is no. At this point, I'm just going to say no. There's no chance he started at 730 a.m. I mean, we have his initial statement that he went to work at 1130. We have his trial testimony that he went to work at 11.30. We have Angela Walker's trial testimony that he went to work at 11.30. Even in Dale Hugel's bullshit supplemental report, we have that he went to work at 11.30. And we have his time card, which I have confirmed with Tyler Pipe, that definitely shows that he started work on Friday the 23rd at 11.30. So the short answer is no. He did not go to work at 7.30 a.m. He was either misremembering or bald-faced lying. <laughs> All right, and then one more tweet here from Sugar Free Sweetie. Sugar Free Sweetie writes, Are they serious with all this candy wrapper shit? How does that prove anyone is a murderer? Well, the answer to your, what's her name again? Uh, this would be Sugar Free Sweetie. Well, the answer to your question, Sugar Free Sweetie, is it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what? It's her like, name. It's her field of expertise, apparently. <laughs> Sugar-free sweetie, the candy question. <laughs> this is a serious show, Mike. Sugar-free sugar sweetie has a candy question. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. You got it together? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, so sugar... <laughs> I said... I said informal. This is, this is a little much. This is too far. Sorry, okay. people. Or maybe you're welcome. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about this? 
Uh, but uh, yeah, so sugar free sweetie. Uh, the answer to the question is it doesn't, and I think this is clearly and obviously a fabrication to try to come up with some kind of evidence. I mean, they're just all they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out some way to tie Ed H to that crime scene, and they have nothing. They have no DNA evidence. They have no hairs. The semen's not his. The blood's not his. Nothing's his. They have to find something to tie him back to that crime scene, and so I think that the Jolly Rancher rappers. It's not that they are so important. It's just that that's just something they can use. They have a Jolly Rancher rapper that he left at the police station, maybe, or sort of. And so if they could have another Jolly Rancher rapper on the crime scene, then at least they have something. Imagine if they went to trial without that. And they go in and say, well, Kubia says she was talking to Edward. Well, what evidence do you have that he was there? Nothing. But then when you add in this Jolly Rancher rapper that was in the guest bathroom, that was mentally noted by Jason Waller. There was no photos of it, and it wasn't collected into evidence. But then later the next day, after it turned over to the family, then supposedly they go in and get it. Imagine if they didn't have that. And then imagine if the car seat wasn't pushed all the way back, which, again, no photos of, nothing documented in the report. But then later, out of nowhere, this comes up that the car seat was pushed all the way back. So imagine if that didn't happen. And then imagine if the jury didn't hear that there was a towel hung over the window with a huge handprint on it. So if you think about it, everything that ties Ed to that crime scene were all things that are suspect. There's no evidence that was collected the night they did the crime scene investigation that ties Ed back to that crime scene. Everything they have came later after the fact and under some pretty suspicious circumstances. So I think that the Jolly Rancher rapper was just Smith County trying to pile on. And when you really look at Ed's case as a whole, there's no one, two, or even three things that make him look guilty. This was an entirely circumstantial case. More than circumstantial, it was a speculative case. So they had to have a lot of little things to make the jury believe that he was the most likely suspect. And that's where the Jolly Rancher rappers came in. Okay, Chief. And last, we have a Facebook post here from a Kristen Peters. Kristen says, word of the day, shit, and it's derivatives. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. Normally, I put it like an explicit mark if there's a lot of swearing. I didn't think it was too excessive. I didn't drop any F-bombs. No, you didn't drop any F-bombs. Which is why there were so many (laughs) S-bombs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was, what you're hearing kind of behind the scenes here, and Mike sees this every week, is I don't script the podcast. And last week especially, we had documents scattered all over the place. Oh, yeah. And so when I'm reading off the podcast, I'm spitballing. I just have a basic outline of what I want to talk about. I'm referring to documents as I go along. And so when you're hearing emotion out of me, that's my real emotion. And I was obviously pissed last week. And I was trying not to use too many F words. Yeah. And so that turned into the shit word used a lot. Uh, So hopefully that didn't offend anybody. It doesn't seem to use it. Most of you seem to actually like it when I'm angry. (laughs) But that's what's happening there. So, you know, if you don't like the bad language, I'm sorry, but I can't promise you you're going to have the best episode every week or exactly what you're looking for. But what I can promise you is every week what you're going to get is the real Bob Ruff. And last week, Bob Ruff was mad. I was incredibly angry when I found that document and read through it and realized the change in outcome that it could have had in that trial and the fact that it was ignored. I'm just, I'm still frustrated, completely frustrated. So that was part of it. And then also, I really wanted to demonstrate to all of you the diversity of the word. There's so many different ways that you can use it. Oh, you did a fine job, Chief. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so I think that wraps things up for social media. 
We're going to take a couple calls next. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's get right into our phone calls. All right, I'm on the air with Kimberly from Arizona. How you doing, Kimberly? Hi, Bob. I'm great. How are you? I'm so happy to talk to you. That's great to hear from you. Thank you. Okay, so here is my question. So I know for a long time we have been focusing on that Thursday night, and I can't get out of my mind that Elnora had this routine, and she made dinner for Leonard Mosley every every Thursday. He came over after work. That was their thing. Dinner was set. And so I was so focused on that simply because he was late supposedly getting home and his time didn't match with what Angela said. And that whole thing is strange regarding your interaction with Angela. And I just had a terrible feeling about that. Well, now we have Francis Johnson. Clearly, there's an issue there. And what if he showed up at Elnora's house and saw dinner set for another man and got upset about that? But I feel like somehow it's all tied together. Like, did Francis get there first and then Leonard got there second and was like, let me get the hell out of here? I don't know. I think that you're on to something in the fact that I have thought from the very beginning that there was more than one perpetrator in that trailer that night. And so we have, in my mind right now, I see what could be three potential suspects, one being Leonard Mosley one being mm-hmm. Angela Walker and one being mm-hmm. Francis Johnson. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are things indicating that all three of them may have been there that night. We have, yeah, I mean, we have Leonard Mosley is supposed to be there. She made him a fresh dinner. She was expecting him. There's the message on the answering machine. He's supposedly home late that night. And then mm-hmm. we have Angela Walker, who... She, we don't know anything about her, but all of a sudden she's got these weird stories about Margie calling her the night before, uh, and then you know, this weird story at trial about seeing Ed there, right. the whole fingernail thing, the fingernail scratch. I don't trust her. Yeah. I I'm, think she's the key. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you there, too. And I, and I don't know if she's the key, but I just, I'll say that I have an uneasy feeling about her. And mm-hmm. then you have Francis Johnson, who who has told supposedly several people that he was there that night. So you know, right. we have all three of them. So it's like either were all three of them there or two of them there. And so we start to go mm-hmm. through some different scenarios in our mind. And right. for me, when you when you read the testimony, I don't know if you've gone through the website and looked at Francis Johnson's trial testimony. Every detail of every bit of every little thing that you've ever done, Bob. I love it. You you win, uh, Kimberly. You win Listener of the Week for, do- <laughs> for doing your Thanks. homework. But did you notice when you read his testimony, Francis isn't in – he's not all that excited about trying to prove his innocence. He kind of doesn't seem to give a shit. Like at the beginning, right. he's he's – yeah, I was there. I was working on the pond and yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. no, no big deal. It wasn't until Dobbs came in later with that Exhibit 137. It's almost like Dobbs changed his story for him. 
And so to, mm-hmm. to me, just looking at it from a behavioral standpoint, hard for me to reconcile Francis being the guy that murdered her and then being mm-hmm. willing. I mean, I believe Ed. I know Ed and, and Ed Ed shares everything with me. I believe that he is brutal. I've, I've told Ed many times, if you lie to me, I can't help you because you're going to have Correct. me investigating yep. something that is in the wrong direction. And Ed insists Francis told him he was there. Kenny Snow tells me mm-hmm. he insists Francis told him he was there. Margie mm-hmm. told me. Well, she... Bob, let me say something about that, though. Okay. Look at look at what we're trying to do here. We are dealing with a community of police officers and in in, a, in an incredible injustice to people, and so it's not abnormal for people to be concerned that they're going to be thrown in jail for absolutely no reason, right? And to make up a lie, to make up an alibi, to do whatever to protect themselves, because. Right. It's almost natural, and it's almost like their first instinct to do that. And how terrifying is it to live a life like that? Yeah, a place to live a life where you don't trust the police. You have to fear the police, and that's exactly the state that they were in. You know, it goes back to the very first time that I talked to Johnny Pryor, and I told her, I think that they may have got the wrong guy, and I think that it may have been intentional. She was Her reaction was just, yeah, well, that's what they do. Like, it wasn't even shocking to her. She it, she was right. so I, conditioned honestly, to it, she wasn't even upset by it. And that was shocking to you, but I bet it's not shocking now. Should someone else say that to you now, right. it becomes less shocking. It, it's just horrifying. Yeah, so consider that mindset and then go back and think about Francis Johnson. He comes into court. This is a, a community of people that have a distrust for the police. Uh, Francis Johnson had many run-ins with the police. And he comes into court under oath in front of the jury and says, yeah, I was there that week. I was there that week. I was doing stuff. And then right. later, Dobbs you know, turns him away from it. But I just don't get the feeling that Francis is trying to prove his innocence in any way. I That behavior, to me, almost makes him look— Unless he felt safe. That's true. He, he Unless could, he was told yeah, that, that he didn't have anything to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. It could be so— and we don't know much about Francis other than he said he was there. But then if he did say he was there and he was guilty and he's the one that did it, I, I just asked myself, and, and I'm just I'm really just spitballing with you here. I don't I don't know any of this mm-hmm. for a fact. Right. But it's like if he really did it, then why in the hell would he tell the guy that's in jail for this murder in front of other witnesses that he was there that night and had a fight with her? Unbelievable. Yeah. And and so to me the, the the scenario that seems to make a lot of sense would be what if Leonard Mosley did go there like he normally does on Thursday, and mm-hmm. and what if Angela then showed up uh, and caught them mm-hmm. in the act? You know, because remember the crime scene analysis. You know, that's exactly right. How does a four foot four, forty seven year old woman that weighs a hundred and four pounds break loose from the grasp of somebody that is choking her so tightly? Right. That she's defecating and the blood vessels in her eyes are are exploding. How does she get away? Because right. because as that process goes on, you're getting weaker. I feel like someone had right. to have been fighting for her to help her get away. A little bit at a time. I mean, he was probably trying to defend Elnora. He was trying to get Angela off of her. And it was probably just a big cluster, you know what, back and forth. And that is the mother of his child. And ultimately, that's where his loyalty lies. And it will always lie with that. And that is why they will protect each other to the end. 
Yeah, I think that that's you know I I I can't say that's what happened, but I I definitely think that that is it's still a plausible working theory, meaning that so far we have not been able to find or I have not been able to find any evidence that contradicts that theory. You know, there's not, there's not this one thing that well, says. Well, isn't that right? You said that as a fire chief, you go forward with what the evidence shows you until it doesn't show you that. Right, and you keep digging and you keep going every time for me. I gather evidence, develop a theory, and then I try to dig deeper into the evidence, try to find more evidence in, in, with the intention of trying to poke holes in that theory. And so far, I haven't found it. And that doesn't mean that's what happened. You know, the two could have had nothing to do with this. But it certainly it still has to stay in the category as a plausible theory for sure. Well, and, and just the thought of why would they protect each other to the end? And they are. The other thing that I think that is so strange, though, Bob, because I've thought this for so long, but then your interview with him threw me off and it threw you off too. Yeah. Because he was so calm and cool and collected. And oh, I just don't know. I don't know what to say. I sent you an email um, a couple of weeks ago and the title of the email was just, what the, and it was like exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point again after you said, and next week I'm having the interview with you know who. And I literally just blurted those words out because <laughs> I was so excited and I cannot wait for that interview. And I just want to thank you for everything. And if there's ever anything that I can do, if you want me to research anything, I'm a nurse. If you just need an opinion about something, anything that I can do to help anybody at any time. I've looked into the Innocence Project here in Arizona. I'm going to volunteer my time. I'm literally considering going to law school. and becoming a defense attorney and and just trying to make a difference in every single way that I can because I'm completely disgusted. Well, that's awesome, Kimberly. And thank you for your help. And we'll definitely keep you in mind the next time we have a nursing question. And thank you again for <laughs> all of your support in, in every way you give it. You have a great night, Kimberly. I appreciate it. Thanks, boys. You're doing a great job. Have a good night. Yep. Bye. Okay. I'm on the air with Christine from the Chicago area. How are you doing tonight, Christine? I'm doing great, Bob. How are you? I'm doing really well. So Mike says you got a question about Elnora's family. So um, when you had the interview with Margie, um, she had said something, and it, it might have been just in passing, about her family knowing about the rumors of dr the like drug cartel. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, were they ever investigated? Because weren't they there like the day before she was murdered? Well, they were there the weekend before she was murdered. They left on that Sunday. And, okay. And no, I don't think they were ever really investigated. And, and I don't think it's that's a, a real viable option for a couple of reasons. One, you have she has, she has two children. She has a daughter and a son. Her daughter lived in Alabama and was in town that weekend and then had gone back. Her daughter was in Alabama when the murder occurred. Her son lived in the Dallas area. Um, I should go back. I'm not positive her daughter went back to Alabama. She may have went and stayed with her son in Dallas. And I say that because it seems like Eleanor was going to be going the next weekend to Dallas because I think everyone was still there. So that's a possibility. But in either case, Ed tells me that he he had actually ran into Elnora's son in Dallas because because by the time the trial came around, Ed Ed and Kim were living in Dallas with Kyra. And he said that when Elnora's son found out that it was him, who he was, and he was there, that he pretty much wanted to kill him. Uh, and so j just by Ed describing the anger 
in in Elnora's son towards Ed. It just seems pretty unlikely that he would have anything to do with it. Plus, you know, that's his, that's his mom. There's just no indication at all that her children had anything to do with any of this. And as far as the drug connection, actually a little sneak peek into Sunday's episode, episode 243, uh, I actually was able to get a hold of somebody this week who I've, I've talked to and I'm hoping to actually record an interview with this person. But I believe we can put the the drug cartel angle that we heard from Margie to rest this weekend. Okay. Yeah, I know it was brought up a couple of times before, um, and then Margie had brought it up. It just seems odd to me that, like, her family isn't wanting to know, like, what you're doing. Right. Because if I had somebody in my family murdered, I'd be like, wait a second. Like, I thought this was all done. Like, what am I missing? Right. You know? It, well, and, and that's part of the reason why I am still not convinced that the Smith County DA's office actually got a hold of her family. For starters, I, I cannot find either of her children anywhere. I've had numbers that say, I, I'm wondering, I think her daughter may be married to somebody in the military because the addresses that I have for her are bounced all over the country. You know, she's been in Alabama and, and several other states, and I can't seem to locate her. Her son, I can't seem to locate. They're telling me, and they told the attorney general that they got a hold of them and told them what was going on, and her family was insistent that they not release the crime scene photos to me. But I've seen no documentation of that, and and I agree with you. Either way, if someone was looking into you know my mother's murder, I would have something to say about it. I would, especially the way Ed described her son to me. He said he's he's, he's a nice guy, but I mean he was angry, obviously that the, right. this person killed his mother. And now somebody is trying to get this person out of prison, and I haven't heard a word. And I'm not, as I've said before, I'm not a difficult person to get a hold of. I, you know, I give all of my information out every single episode on how to get a hold of me, and I've never heard from either one of them. So I have my doubts that her children have any idea about what I'm doing, that this is even going on. Yeah, that's sad. It is. It really is. And I would love to talk to them. And it, and it may be an awkward, uncomfortable conversation. I mean, it, it, it would have to be. You know, they have closure in their mind. They believe that the person that killed their mother has been locked up for all these years, and then now here's this guy that's bringing up all these old wounds and, and opening up the case again. I'm sure that's difficult. It's a difficult conversation to have, but it's one I would like to have, at least to be able to explain to them that I'm searching for justice not just for Ed Eights, but also for their mother to find the person that really killed her. Right, because she she obviously didn't get justice, um, just as Ed hasn't. So, you know, that's why I would think, like, if it were me, I'd be like, why? You know, what what's the truth? I want the truth more than anything. Right, I would expect a couple, either I want the truth and I want justice, or you're an asshole and I want you to stop digging into this. We already have the right guy. What I would not expect is to right. not hear from them at all. And and like I said, that's I I would really love to see some kind of confirmation that they've actually been spoken to by the district attorney's office because again I would be shocked if they did talk to them and they have nothing to say to me one way or the other. Right. Well. Well. Thank you so much for answering it. My question. It just like ever since you know you said that you know you can't get a hold of them, you can't even find them, and then what Margie said, it just didn't sit right with me. So. Yeah, I'm the same with the, the the whole thing is just kind of baffling to me. But thanks for calling in, and uh, hopefully, sometime soon, I'll have a, a real answer for you on that. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and all that you do, Bob. All right. Well, thank you. Have a great night, Christine. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, that's all the calls that we're going to take for today. We had a few more calls that you guys didn't hear today. Some people had some questions that didn't quite fit with today's content. But the couple that we did have on the air here, I think were some great questions and generated some great discussion. And also next week when we do the follow-up episode, a lot of people have emailed or tweeted or sent Facebook messages saying that they wanted to call in, but they didn't think that they could get through. And I want to let you guys know that when we do these follow-up episodes, since we're doing them every week now, the phone lines aren't jam-packed all night like they are normally when we do a call-in episode. I mean, there were a couple times where we went almost five minutes without anybody calling in. Yeah. So if you have a question, please feel free to call in. And if you're nervous, don't worry about it. Call in. Uh, we're both pretty easy to talk to, especially Mike. Yeah, I'd like to think so anyway. <laughs> we have a lot of fun doing this, and I love hearing from all of you. So hopefully next week we'll hear from more of you guys, and we'll keep these conversations going. We do want to make a couple of announcements. Uh, for the follow-up episode next week, we'll still be taking the phone calls at the same normal time. It'll be Tuesday night from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday night. But next week's episode is going to be a little bit different. The sound quality may be a little bit off because I'm actually going to be out of town next week is actually my family's annual deer camp where we go up to our cabin and drink beer and never take our guns out of our cases. (laughs) Man stuff. Yeah, haven't brought a deer back in years. Yeah. (laughs) But have a great time with my dad, my brother, and my cousin. So we're going to be recording next week's episode remotely. Mike's actually going to be back here with the phone hooked into the soundboard. I'm going to be calling in. Probably from some hilltop near the cabin, because there's really no phone service at the actual cabin. Right. So hopefully the sound quality will be okay, but uh, we want to keep doing this. I, I love hearing from you guys, and, and Mike is far more technologically advanced than I am, and he says that he's got this figured out. That's not true at all, Chief. That's a complete lie. Yeah, I'll be training Mike this week how to do that. Exactly. <laughs> try to throw you a bone. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's noted. <laughs> but the other thing that I wanted to announce is I have made an error in the hashtags. So apparently on Twitter, the hashtag and just the episode number, so like this week, the hashtag 242, does not register as a searchable hashtag. I don't know if it's not enough characters or what the deal is, but it made it really difficult for us to go through all the tweets and find the tweets that were supposed to be for the follow-up. So from now on, the hashtag you'll use after each episode for the follow-up episodes will be hashtag episode and the number. So in two days, Sunday, episode 243 is going to drop. I think it's going to be a great episode. Got some new information. Contacted somebody I've been trying to get a hold of for a long time. So when you want to send in your follow-up questions, either on Twitter or on Facebook, let's use the hashtag episode243. So hashtag episode243. And also do the same thing on the emails, but primarily the issue is on Twitter. You have to use hashtag episode243 in order for us to be able to search that hashtag to find all of your questions. So, other than that, I think we're done. It was great to hear from all of you. Oh, it was a great night. And we're going to go ahead and wrap things up, so we'll talk to you guys next Tuesday. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Michael Bussing. Today's intro music was To the Top by Score Squad. All other music was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logos. As always, I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Desiree Dunn, and Sarah Mueller for transcribing the episodes and mailing them all off to Kenny and Ed every week. I want to thank today's sponsors for funding today's episode, Vista Print and Blue Apron. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. 
Send us new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And make sure to use the hashtag episode243 for follow-up questions about Sunday's episode. But however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.